with Custodians of the Planet. I'm Deniz Yıldız. Custodians of the Planet brings consciousness to planetary challenges and looks at different perspectives regarding the tensions and harmony of human activities in a changing climate. stuck in the middle of a climate emergency and a global public health emergency but we are potentially also at a critical turning point it seems to me that we are not only experiencing physical transformation but also consciousness shifts many people seem to be asking what do we want our world to look like on the other side of this and how can we create a shared vision of a sustainable and desirable future I can't stop myself from thinking about how the environment might be benefiting from humans staying at home at the moment. Less air travel, less manufacturing, and fewer humans stomping around. Carbon emissions have fallen. There is cleaner air in China and Europe, and the trade in exotic animals is being stopped in some places. However, the crisis hasn't been uniformly positive for the planet. There has been a resurgence in the use of single-use packaging, recycling centers have reduced capacity, and in the US, the Trump administration has suspended some environmental protection laws. So, to help us work our way out of this mess and envision a desirable future, we have with us today a very special guest, Francis Moore Lape. Francis is the co-founder of the Institute for Food and Development Policy, known as Food First and the Small Planet Institute. Francis's name appears on 19 books, the first being the bestseller Diet for a Small Planet, which in 1971 made the case for plant-based diets. Francis has received 18 honorary doctorates as well as the Right Livelihood Award. She is considered one of the 20th century's most vibrant activist thinkers who pumps life into basic roots. Francis, welcome to Custodians of the Planet. Oh, it's a great honor to talk to you. I'm very excited about this. There's a lot to talk about, Francis. I can't describe Indeed. my excitement. <laughs> Thanks for being on Custodians of the Planet. First, I would like to start with your first book, actually. Diet for mm-hmm. a Small Planet called out meat production as unnecessary and unsustainable and argued that world hunger is not caused by a lack of protein, but by ineffective food policy. So I wonder, what has driving food policy then and what has changed? Do you like what you see almost 50 years later? Oh, boy, big question. Well, let me just say that when I wrote Diet for a Small Planet, we were <laughs> hearing from people like Paul Ehrlich, who wrote the book Population Bomb, and a book called Famine 1975 was just out. So basically, the framing of the challenge was that there's not enough. Scarcity, scarcity, scarcity. And we have to produce more and more. That was the solution. Mm. So... My life changed when I went to the library and literally put the numbers together and realized that there was then and is now enough food. So what I ended up saying is that hunger is not caused by scarcity of food, but by scarcity of democracy. 
And what I mean by that is that our food system defies the laws of nature. <laughs> it is very malaligned with nature itself, but also with what's the healthiest for us. And there it is. So I got so excited about eating every day. I eat multiple times a day. I'm kind of a grazer um, <laughs> in ways that remind me of my connection to everything and how do my choices affect everything. So it's, it's kind of tricky in the sense that a lot of people, understandably, with the title Diet for a Small Planet, in some ways, I kind of fed the idea that there's not enough with the word small. But actually, it was a book, what I think of as an act of rebel sanity to eat in a way that is uh, best for our bodies, best for the earth, and best for the people who are growing our food. And so I learned that actually our meat-centered diet <laughs> was the most inefficient way conceivable to grow because now we have roughly, you know, between two-thirds, three-quarters of our agricultural land going to livestock production. But guess what? We only get 17% of our calories from meat, from livestock. Mm. And with beef, it's 3%. 3% of the feed calories going to cattle come back to us in meat, 3%. That's pretty inefficient. So, you know, I just began to see that is the way that we grow and we reduce the earth's capacity, not absolute scarcity, that is a problem. And the reason we're able to do that, make that big mistake, is because we have such concentrated power, the opposite of democracy. And when you said, how do I think of it now compared to then, let me say, <laughs> our food system is even more controlled by a few. There are just three companies that control more than half the seed market, the pesticide market, that are still pushing this idea of more, more, more grown with dangerous chemicals that harm farm workers and ultimately all of us. And certainly the wider nature, there's been a huge, for example, decimation of insect populations, huge decrease because of the chemicals that we use in our agricultures. And insects are so vital to all aspects of the ecosystem. Mm. So things, things have gotten worse in many ways, in absolute numbers, about the same number of hungry people today. Of course, it's a smaller percentage, but the food that's being eaten often is contributing to disease that wasn't true 50 years ago. So in that way, it's gotten worse as well. And at the same time, there's so much greater awareness of what we need to, to be healthy and how to grow food ecologically in ways that actually can enrich the ecosystem as well as be healthy for us. So it's a both and, you know, it's worse and it's better, worse and it's better, you know? Yeah, right. It's, it's an interesting tension and dynamic, I guess. You, you mentioned scarcity of democracy. It might be a good time to talk about living democracy. Can you tell us what is living democracy and why is it important? Well, basically, I start with a frame that we now know what conditions bring out the very worst in our species, and that is concentrated power, lack of transparency, in other words, secrecy, and blaming like we see today. And those three conditions are the opposite of democracy. So for me, living democracy is creating those three conditions that have proven to bring out the best in us. That is the widest dispersion of power, and that's why I'm part of the democracy movement 
here in the U.S. and working on a website that will feature every piece of this growing democracy movement of movements that, you know, includes the environment, old people, includes food people, but also so racial justice, labor, democracy reforms, all working for a wider dispersion of power in which we all have a voice. That's what living democracy means to me. And, and I want to underscore the word living, you know, that's been, uh, that's our tagline of our Small Planet Institute is living democracy, feeding hope. And that's on our everywhere, all over our website. And what that means to me is that we humans are creatures of the mind and we absorb this idea that democracy is for somebody else. It's kind of boring. It's a structure that we inherit or not. It's a duty. It's dull. And living democracy means to me that it is the way we live our lives. How do we function in relationships? Mm. Are we sharing of decision-making? How do we stay tuned in with what is happening into the wider world enough that we can weigh in to keep power dispersed and to make sure that things are transparent? And, you know, that as long as we think of democracy as some structure that we inherited, oh, aren't we lucky, you know, because we got this great structure of government, so we don't have to do anything, that's a killer. And I think too many Americans just take for granted that we have democratic government, when in fact, you know, we rank in terms of the quality of our electoral system, we now rank behind 55 countries in the world, including like, for example, South Africa and Brazil, countries that we wouldn't think that we would rank behind. So it's really a very different idea of democracy as a way of life. Mm, wow, that really resonates with me, the idea of democracy as a way of life. Because that's really true, actually, when we think about it, it is always a thought, something really static. Yeah. But in your framework, it's quite inclusive and participatory in, in it, that sense. It has to be. I believe it has to be. And the problem is there's a self-reinforcing negative, negative process going on now where, you know, government, when I think you mentioned with Trump, pulling back almost 100 environmental protections and we feel less and less represented and protected by our government, then we disconnect more. Mm. When actually, I'm saying we, that's we've got to reconnect more. And so we've got to break that dangerous spiral and we can't do it by just wagging our fingers at people. And I don't want to be heard that way. You know, I'm not like saying, you should, you should, you're bad if you're not. I, I don't want to communicate that because... I really want to welcome people. And my life was changed forever four years ago when I actually marched from Philadelphia to Washington as part of the democracy spring, uh, demanding these core reforms that would keep money out of its central controlling role in our political system and really ensure the right to vote for everyone. And it was life-changing because I discovered what I call the thrill of democracy, because in that march, I didn't even think I could walk 10 miles, much less <laughs> 100 and something That's miles. Right. And so I, I learned this thrill that, oh, what is it? It's like connection. Like I met all these people I would never meet otherwise, you know, an ex-military person, a lawyer from California. I don't know, just people I would never meet and bonding with them over our core belief in democracy 
But one of the biggest moments was when I actually approached the Capitol, and as we were chanting, whose democracy? Our democracy. <laughs> I, I was gazing forward, and I, I saw the dome of our Capitol for the first you know, moment in this march. Because I had participated with other people in this civic action, I had a complete reframe. And I looked and I said, oh, my gosh, those people work for me in that building. I'm their boss. I'm the citizen. <laughs> they work for me. Right? They do. Yeah. We, you know, they, that's how we should look at it. They're in our service. And it was that moment of power that has never completely gone away since that moment. But it was that power because I was with others. And I think being with strangers in a common purpose is so, you know, so empowering because, you know, with our friends, we kind of know that we share a lot of values. But when you're in a group where it's all strangers and you share this core value, you think, oh, you know, maybe we can do this. Maybe we're not weirdos, you know, maybe we can really make this happen. And since then, there's been a big growth in democracy movement that I want to now help make more visible through this coming website that we're producing. I love this story and I love the way you're seeing and interpreting things. And I think it's kind of contagious. <laughs> I want to walk 10 miles. <laughs> um, well, good. Yeah, and also the organization you co-founded food first is it's uh -huh. kind of output of this understanding because it aims to provide the tools that can reshape people's worldviews can you tell us yes. a bit about what are the tools and ingredients of reshaping views and making change in society because usually when the values are involved there's this polarization so I would love to hear the ingredients. Uh-huh. Well, I I think the first it's getting clear in our own the first ingredient, if you will, is that we are really we're we're shifting the core frame through which people see. When I the big aha for me when I was 26 years old and I realized the experts were wrong. I went, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> the only reason that I could write the book I did is because my eyes were untrained, so I could see with fresh eyes. Our vision is limited by the ideas that we hold, the preconceptions, that we've got to start very carefully communicating a very different frame. I love the saying, those who tell the stories rule the world. It's, it's attributed to Plato and to the Hopi Indians, so I think it must be true. Um, <laughs> what is the story? I think the first ingredient is understanding that we have to be creating a new story. It's not just about passing a particular law that limits the power of money in politics, for example, or you know, defeats voter suppression in the states and that sort of thing. We have to understand that this is part of creating a new story about who we are as people, because the dominant view, I think of it as the scarcity scare. It's that, you know, scarcity of both goods and goodness, that there's not enough food, not enough, you know, income, not enough parking places in Boston. I mean, everything is scarce, yeah. right? <laughs> so it's a scarce and, and the other part of the scarcity scare is there's not enough goodness in us. So it's both 
goods and goodness, that there's not enough selflessness, there's not enough empathy, there's not enough cooperative spirit in human beings. So we have to understand that we have to be uprooting that false worldview I call the scarcity scare. And what is emerging is what I call the ecological worldview, the eco-mind, where we realize that we're all connected, everything is connected, all the things that you began, you know, about the impact of the pandemic and these consequences and everything that we do is connected with everything else. So the only choice we don't have is whether to change the world. In other words, in an ecological worldview, everything we do and don't do is changing the world around us, right? If we don't follow the rules now, we have the chance to be infected or infect others. Everything we do and don't do is impactful. So I think that's the first ingredient of being clear on what is the what is the new worldview? I call it the eco-mind that we are birthing, this idea of connection, shared power, and mutual accountability, where, mm. you know, it, we can't just be in the blame mode. We can't just say, oh, it's Donald Trump. If we just get rid of him, then we'll be okay. We have to realize that it's the shift in the in worldview that, that now power is so incredibly concentrated, for example, and we know that brings out the worst in us. And it's very non-ecological because that's not how nature works. Yes, we need to be active and make sure we don't have a president who breaks the law, but that's not enough. You know, we have to be remaking view of ourselves and how we relate to the world. Basically, it's saying in an eco-mind, the new emergent understanding of ourselves, everything is connected, everything is, is continually changing, and therefore we are each creating, co-creating the world moment to moment. So we all have power in, in this ecological worldview. Wow. Wow, that's, that's really powerful. And I totally agree with that. The problem is not Trump, but it's definitely the concentrated power. And they also told stories, you know, there are like stories and narratives they've been using. Yes. <laughs> to come to this oh, point. Oh, absolutely. So we just, we just need to reverse that. Yeah. Right. No, they've been so successful in teaching this idea of, you know, greed is good and the free market is freedom. And, you know, they have this very simple frame that is just with a lot of money behind it, too. They meaning, you know, those of great wealth who believe, and I, I think it's sincere, they believe, you know, that all we have to do is turn over everything to the market and then everybody benefits. But it's so counterfactual, <laughs> of course, but they're very systematic at going about creating new centers and academic institutions. And the Koch network, the one of the wealthiest in the world, the Koch network, a political network, is basically so large it rivals the, the Republican Party, but it's invisible and unaccountable. So this theme of everybody's competing with everybody else and we're all separate and we all have to look out for our self-interest, that's being spread through really largely invisible network. And mm -hmm. that's what we have to replace with a more life-serving worldview. Yeah. Oh, wow. You you talked about eco-minds. And in that book, you argue that humans are doers, but we fall into thought traps that stop us from taking action, as we're discussing now. In the context of COVID-19, assuming this pandemic will end at some point, I wonder, how do we start to push 
past those thought traps to create the world we do want? Well, I think that COVID-19 definitely is exposing and worsening the extreme inequalities that exist in our society. So in that way, it's taking the veil off because I think that even though people should be aware that so many people are not aware of how incredibly inequitable our economy is, especially for people of color. I have a dear friend who, you know, even three weeks ago, he had several deaths in his family and hospitalizations. He's African-American. It was just devastating his family. And that just really brought to life, you know, what's exposed now that, you know, people aren't generally aware of how disadvantaged are people of color and low income people. So pandemic will have the potential to increase monopoly power in our economy because small businesses are the ones who are more going out of business. So in some ways, it's the wake up that everything that's been less visible is now more visible. And at the same time, the <laughs> The irony that this threat, I myself suffered COVID. I'm a recovering COVID. Oh, really? Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a long process. But in a way, you know, I'm not glad I had it. And I I didn't ever feel afraid of death. So I don't want to overstate my experience. But it it does, I, I realize how just being consciousness where I know everything I do and, you know, that I could potentially, although I think I'm now, you know, I any kind of contagious stage, but who knows? So, you know, just that consciousness that every choice we make that could be either harming or helping someone else, that it makes us feel so much more connected mm, to everybody, right? Totally, totally. And that can't, I don't think we can wash that out of our brains. I really don't. And then also just, oh my God, I'm going to start weeping that, you know, we're so much more aware of people who are risking their lives for others. So that in itself, right, that erases part of that idea that human beings are just these selfish little shoppers, right, out for their self-interest, which is the dominant view. So just seeing this kind of selflessness and when people are cheering, you know, Italians especially, you know, created this meme of going out and cheering for the healthcare workers on your balcony. And in, in our family, in my partner's family, we have a doctor. I, I've always loved her and honored her, but now <laughs> my feelings for her have just just blossomed even more. So I think that that people's experience of how others are behaving has to erase some of that notion that, you know, you can't trust each other and we just have to be the competing against each other in the market, you know, yeah. that we actually are capable of this selflessness and, and caring, other. need each other, absolutely. And so I think all of that is heightened, that sense of connection and that sense of honoring each other, our needs and our contributions, that they're not just, you know, just all the sharing that's going on, aside from the healthcare workers. But I just hear story after story of somebody, you know, going to the store for their elderly neighbor, or, you know, just millions of instances of, of helping, helping your neighbor, literally or figuratively. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we're about to reach an intellectual climax. Can you, can you tell us, what does it mean to think like an ecosystem? Because it's quite influential in your thinking and in your work. It is. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, I, I think there are these three elements. I remember them as the three C's. You know, the, the three elements that define the eco-mind to me, that we realize everything is connected. Mm. Everything is in continuous change. That's the second C is uh, change, a continuous change. And the third is that, therefore, from the first two, if we're all connected and change is the given of life, then we are all co-creators. And that's everything that you and I have just been talking about. I think that's what the eco-mind means to me. And as you pointed out, you know, just how much impact <laughs> our human problem of disease is having in this moment, you know, what the impact is, it's, it's positive for, for nature now that we're not emitting so much carbon. And But just that consciousness, I guess it started for me at age 26. And the first time I heard the word ecology, actually, was in that era. And, and realizing that, oh, that gives me so much power because everything I do affects everything, you know. Yeah. So I think that's really the essence <laughs> of the eco mind, and it's the opposite of the scarcity mind, which plays on the sense of the three S's of scarcity, separateness, and stasis, or things are static, you know, that we can't change, that things don't change. So I, I think it is liberating, and it it's is what's totally needed right liberating. now more than ever. Oh, yes, yes. I think with the COVID-19 case, I totally agree with you. This, this has seen as a moment of connection and we're getting to know our neighbors, trying to support local businesses. Locality has become a term that we, we started to realize in our lives. So I think if we have the right narratives and leadership this this COVID-19 pandemic could have a happy ending mm. yeah I really think it we could look back you know a few decades and say that was the turning point where people really did understand yes. that we're in this together mm. we are in this together and we can count on each other and I think that is transformative yeah and it's, it's really nice to feel like the trust and confidence in each other instead of the feelings of postmodern loneliness. I'm taking the next step from here onto a personal question. What does a sustainable and desirable world look like to you? Well, the first image that comes to mind very specifically, I've just been so enamored and just so moved by African farmers who are moving to the integration of trees and crops, which is called agroforestry. And it embodies for me, it's incredibly healthy for the earth and the air, you know, in terms of sequestration, but it also increases food yields and empowers farmers to work together. So a sustainable world for me has these elements of that the cooperation of farmers, so the human cooperation, and they are co cooperating with the biodiversity around them so that instead of just having their own uniform crop of corn, say, that their crops are varied and interspersed with the trees and they're all helping each other. The trees are helping the crops and there are animals in the system. And that's the first flash I have is Niger, which transformed, you know, 12 and a half million acres of land in this way and secured food for over 2 million people. So that is one just image I have in my mind that when I, you ask me that question, and I think 
in urban areas, I hope that it means that we could have more communities living in proximity to each other, that there are common areas where we can feel more this connection with our neighbors. Yeah, that's a beautiful world. <laughs> and, and my final question is, what advice do you have for those who are feeling a sense of hopelessness about with what we are at right now? Well, my daughter and I, when we came back from a trip to many continents after we wrote the book Hope's Edge, we looked at each other and we said, wait a minute, the people we met were, were in the most difficult situation, the poorest people working against the greatest odds, but they were filled with hope. What does that tell us? And we looked at each other and we said, oh, they were filled with hope because they were doing something with other people. <laughs> they weren't alone and they were in action. And so our slogan for our organization became, hope is not what we seek out there in evidence, it's what we become Aww. in action together. That's, that's great. So I think that's the key. Just do something, but not alone. Reach out to your friends and do something together. And that is the best antidote to fear and to hopelessness, which I think is our greatest enemy right now. Yeah, that's so right. Whew. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a beautiful way to end this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time, Francis. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, thank you. It's been fun for me too on this great day. <laughs> thank you for being you and thank you for your work. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all you're doing. Thank you for all you're doing. <laughs> That was our conversation with Francis. Before we end this episode, just take a moment to think. How are you responding to COVID-19? What does a sustainable and desirable world mean to you? How is your relationship with your neighbors in that world? How do you take decisions in your community? Where is nature? And when you extend this vision from your neighborhood to your city, country, and to the world, how does it feel to be living in a sustainable world? this episode i'd like to say special thanks to bonnie paris for editing the script chris show for this for his technical support i'm denis Yildiz, and thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode